Hello, 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 and welcome to this episode of You Heard It Here First, helping you discover the best that Audible has to offer. I'm your host, Imriel Morgan, and I'm here with more honest opinions about some of the best books, podcasts, plays, and more on offer from Audible. Coming up, we hear about an art-fueled mystery and the ultimate test of physical and mental endurance. Plus, I'll be hearing some of your reviews too. So get comfy as we dive in to find the next listen you'll be obsessed with here on You Heard It Here First. We're kicking things off with a featured customer review. I've had a look through Audible to find some of the best feedback left by you. This week, I'm featuring David, who left a five-star review of Ben McIntyre's historical biography, The Spy and the Traitor. Truly captivating spy epic. This has to be one of the best audiobooks I've listened to in a long time. It's one of those audiobooks that keeps you sat outside your house in the car because you want to finish off the chapter or know what happens next. Truly gripping and all true. What a hero this guy was. Wow, David. When you can't bear to leave your car and stop listening to something, you know it's good. The Spy and the Traitor is available to download on Audible. Next up, I've got a brand new audiobook I'd love to shout about called Lote. Lote is the debut novel from Scottish author Shola von Reinhold. It is a beautiful, luxurious fiction book that I'm going to be honest and say I'm not entirely sure how to describe. It is truly unlike anything I have ever come across, and I think it's marvellous. Lote follows Matilda Adamarola, a black queer working class woman who we quickly learn is transfixed by the bright young things. This was a group of socialites and aristocrats that threw extravagant parties in the 1920s. Matilda obsessively researches the group and frequently refers to them as her transfictions. She then spots a black woman photographed alongside her main transfiction, Stephen Tennant. This sets Matilda on a journey to find out who this woman is and why she was there. Matilda learns that the woman in question is called Hermia Druitt or Drum, depending on the records. She discovers that Hermia was a poet and very much a part of the Bright Young Things, occasionally referenced as the Black Princess. It's at this point the book really picks up pace and begins to tackle bigger questions like the erasure of black people in art and British modernism. The name Lote came from a fictional subgroup of the Bright Young Things that Hermia was part of called the Lote O's, which may have been a reference to Lotus Eaters, the innocent-looking race of people in Greek mythology that lived off the lotus trees. Things get a little more interesting and easier to follow when Matilda discovers a deliberately vague art residency programme that Hermia was part of. She hastily applies and gets into the programme mysteriously referred to as the residency in the remote European town of Dunn. The people on the residency are stuck up and sycophantic, which makes them jarring and immediately unlikable. They are obsessed with their projects and their place on the residency, which Matilda finds both grating and amusing. Listening, you can't help but feel the same. During her time in Dunn, Matilda meets Erskine Lilly, another black queer eccentric who helps her unravel more of Hermia's life. It's only through her interactions with other members of the residency that she comes to understand how black queer figures have been deliberately obscured in art. Have a listen. Inertia, passivity, is destroying the world. I mean, maybe you're interested in this group for more critical reasons, but no. 
Then I repeat, you don't see what's wrong with them? No. Well, you of all people should. To this I had no response. I knew she meant one thing. That I was black. Black, and thus I, more than so many others, more than her, should understand the problem with beauty. With all assertions of the beautiful, but especially European ones, which undermined my existence. Undermined the notion of me as beautiful. Framed art made by people that looked like me throughout history as something below art. Hmm, makes you think, doesn't it? It's narrated primarily by Zhao Yashtin, whose flat and nonchalant delivery ironically sounds poetic and effusive, which fits the tone perfectly. This book is decadent, elaborate and mystifying. Shola's use of language is irritatingly ostentatious and complex. Not only do you have to focus on it, but I'm jealous I didn't write it. Load is part of Jacaranda's 20 in 2020. This is a campaign that addresses the lack of diversity and representation in publishing by doing the previously unheard of, publishing 20 books by 20 black British authors in one year. And I am so glad they picked Sholas. I'm not sure I came away enamoured by any of the characters, but I was grateful for this whimsical exploration of what life could be like for black artists that leaned into a life of luxury, pleasure and excess. This isn't the type of book you can multitask to. It requires concentration and focus in order to fully enjoy it. But don't let that stop you. It is entirely worth it. You can find Shola von Reinhold's novel, Lote, on Audible. Now, like me, you may have been taking advantage of the quiet roads during lockdown to get out on your bike more. If that's the case, then this next hidden gem may really be for you. And if not, I think you'll still enjoy it. That's because my pick this week is Around the World by Bike, written by Alistair Humphreys. In 2001, aged just 24, Alistair made a life-changing decision. He left his house in Yorkshire on a bike and set off on a cycle around the globe. By the time he arrived back home four years later, he had ridden 46,000 miles across five continents. His journey is so impressive that even Sir Ranulph Fiennes, once described as the world's greatest living explorer, said Alistair's trip was the first great adventure of the new millennium. So how did he get started? Well, after finishing university, Alistair realised that a house, a job and security was not for him. He made the decision to leave everything behind, including his girlfriend Sarah, to see as much of the world as he could. While on his travels, Alistair kept diaries and in this audiobook he details some of the amazing things he experienced on his journey. Alistair set out just before 9-11 happened and this has a huge impact on the beginning of his adventure. He'd originally planned to cycle through Asia, but the terror attack meant he had to drastically change his plans. Instead, he headed down to South Africa, despite having done no research on what he'd need to travel through the continent. I don't know if I'd been brave enough to do that. It's an incredibly easy listen. However, I was initially uncomfortable about his narrow and ignorant views of Africa and the Middle East. To his credit, though, this did change when he actually started interacting with these people and places. It's the lucid account of his journey to self-awareness in this book that allows you to be simultaneously annoyed and charmed by Alistair. You'll come away inspired and hopeful about the kindness of strangers, 
Even with differing religious backgrounds and language barriers, there were plenty of people willing to help him out, like when he stopped at an orange farm to rest. One of the men looked a little bit like Osama bin Laden, and he began doing a comical impression of him, bouncing around the room, shooting imaginary Brits and Americans. We all laughed together. Their opinion of the September 11th attacks seemed to be that, while the arrogance of America definitely needed addressing, this had been an evil way of making a statement. We watched the news on TV: a fuzz of dreadful filming, droning monologues, and lots of propaganda. When a clip of the late president was shown, the family seemed genuinely upset. But still, they did not kill me, and I soon learned that Syria is by no means a dry country. As we polished off a bottle of arak, anise-flavored and strong, toasting what for all of us had been a very random, unexpected but entertaining evening, I slept that night alongside the other young men on a pile of woolly blankets on the floor. They settled themselves into comfortable positions with little grunts and coughs after locking the door and turning off the light. Outside, fields of orange trees surrounded the house. And the guard dog chased chickens and wagged his tail. In the morning, my new friends waved me off with the gift of a huge bag of oranges. The horrors of the Middle East? Maybe this wouldn't be so bad after all. It was nice to see his perceptions of people challenged so early on, and I loved picturing the orange trees and the bag full of them too. You'll be moved, possibly to tears, by his sadness and homesickness as he pushes through his limiting beliefs and just keeps cycling. Journeys like this one can seem like an exciting and thrilling ride from start to finish, but it's interesting to see how a big role mental strength played in Alistair's endurance. He once said that the most challenging part was Siberia, with temperatures of minus forty degrees Celsius. The tough parts make the moments of joy even more endearing. What I really liked about this book was the sense of wonderlust it gave me. I love traveling, but haven't been able to do that. It was nice to listen to Alistair's descriptions of countries all over the world and dream of visiting them myself one day. Believe it or not, Alistair's kept his sense of adventure going since returning home. He's completed lots of other challenges, including what he calls micro adventures, like when he spent a week walking around the M25. This earned him the title of National Geographic's Adventure of the Year in 2012. All in all, the book is a wonderful escape for those of us that have been cooped up and longing for an epic adventure to foreign lands. I, for one, would love the challenge, but I'll leave the sore bum and agonizing hill cycling to Alistair. You can find Around the World by Bike by Alistair Humphreys on Audible. It's not just me recommending great audio here on You Heard It Here First. Every week, I'm joined by two guests who want to share a book they love. First up is one of Audible's editors, Robin Morgan Bentley. Hello, Robin. Hi. Could you remind us what you do at Audible, please? Sure. I work on the content team at Audible、uh, on the strategy side of things, basically working out what we invest our time and money in. Brilliant. Sounds very serious and important. What book have you picked for us today? I've picked a book called *The Vanishing Half* by Brit Bennett. Amazing! Sounds very intriguing. Can you tell us a little bit about the plot? Sure. I guess ultimately it's the story of two sisters, and right at the beginning of the book, they decide to run away from their hometown. 
the book follows what happens to them after that. They go in very different directions. So it kind of follows them and the generations that come after them. Amazing. Let's hear a clip. The Veen's twins vanished on August 14th. 1954, right after the Founders' Day dance, which everyone realized later had been their plan all along. Stella, the clever one, would have predicted that the town would be distracted. Sun drunk from the long barbecue in the town square, where Willie Lee, the butcher, smoked racks of ribs and brisket and hot links. Then the speech by Mayor Fontenot. Father Cavanaugh blessing the food, the children already fidgety, picking flecks of crispy chicken skin from plates held by praying parents. A long afternoon of celebration while the band played, the night ending in a dance in the school gymnasium, where the grown folks stumbled home after too many cups of Trinity Thierry's rum punch, the few hours back in that gym pulling them tenderly toward their younger selves. On any other night, Sal de la Fosse might have peeked out his window to see two girls walking under moonlight. Adele Veens would have heard the floorboards creak. Even Lou Le Bon, closing down the diner, might have seen the twins through the foggy glass panes. But on Founder's Day, Lou's egg house closed early. Sal, feeling suddenly spry, rocked to sleep with his wife. Adele snored through her cups of rum punch, dreaming of dancing with her husband at homecoming. No one saw the twins sneak out, exactly how they'd intended. So we've just heard a little bit about the two sisters who are, I guess, the main characters in the book. But could you tell me a little bit more about them? Sure. So a key theme, and I guess the thing that drives most of the narrative is race. So they're two sisters who are black, but who over time, start to define themselves differently in terms of their race. And so there's really interesting issues of colorism in in the book, which is kind of a new topic for me, to be honest. I'm obviously aware of racism, and I have increasingly been reading Black authors and trying to sort of delve into Black stories, as I think a lot of people have in 2020. But it really brings up this issue of colorism, which was a totally new perspective for me. What was your understanding of colorism from the book, do you think? So my understanding from the book, and I understand that's a very complex issue, is discrimination within a particular race. So in the case of this book, it's discrimination based on the colour of the, well, in all cases, it's discrimination based on colour of the skin. In this case, a lighter skinned person seen in some ways favourable over a darker skinned person. Yeah, that sounds pretty accurate. The book's told from multiple perspectives. Do you think they managed to do that? Well, I think it's actually quite unique the way the author manages to do this. I think often when you listen to a book from different perspectives, it weaves in and out. So you have one chapter from one perspective, another chapter from another perspective. What happens in this book is it's in different parts and you hear people's stories in chunks. You really get to delve into their worlds before moving on to another person's perspective. So, yeah, it's really effective, I think. Yeah, I quite liked Jude's perspective, which is Desiree, one of the sisters daughter and she spends quite a lot of time breaking down like you kind of get to learn about her and she is darker skinned than the rest of her family which kind of brings back that colorism theme that you were talking about earlier but that was one of my favorite perspectives did you have any that you really loved 
Yeah, I also loved her perspective because there's a lot of other things going on in her life, lots of sort of simultaneous themes going on. So I don't think it's a spoiler to say that she's got a boyfriend who is a trans man. Uh, his name is Reese, And so there's lots of complexity, lots of different perspectives that you see that often aren't represented in literature or within one section of the book. Yeah, agreed. I really loved the relationship she had with Reese in the book. It kind of took me by surprise, but in the best possible way. And like you said, it's not something you often get to see represented in books, especially like this, especially in like the time period it seems to be set in as well, which I thought was quite interesting. It was exactly the same in real. Like I probably gasped when I heard Mm. uh, it was basically a twist. And I think it's unusual to have what I see as quite a literary book that looks quite in quite a subtle way into psychological relationships that have twists and turns like a like a more commercial thriller would have. And I think it kind of sits somewhere between thriller and literary fiction, this book, which is cool. Yeah, agreed. Was there anything in the book that you really loved, like a, a favourite section or moment? So I loved the experience of listening to this. I actually bought the book and I was sort of simultaneously reading the hardback and listening. And the narrator is not one that I was familiar with before, but she's just incredible at personifying all the different characters in the book, whether that's Jude or Reese or children. Um, she can suddenly, at a seemingly at the flip of a coin, just switch. It was one voice, one woman narrating, but it felt like she was inhabiting a whole world, which was amazing. Yeah, Shana Small, she has like a very wonderful speaking and reading voice it's like very southern and it's just really lovely I really liked it I thought she did a fantastic job yeah me too was there anything that you think that Brit could have improved I feel a bit weird commenting on it because I feel like it's such a good book that it's uh it's a hard one to criticize I don't want to give away anything about the ending I felt a bit dissatisfied about one element of the ending of this book particularly to do with Stella, who is the other sister that we haven't talked about yet. So there's Desiree and Stella, the two sisters. It feels a bit unresolved for me, which is fine, but I feel so invested in the characters that I would have liked to have seen a bit of resolution there. Yeah, fair enough. Would that just not imitate reality that most people don't resolve these issues? Yeah, I think that's completely fair enough. There was a real sense of this is a real story. These are real people's stories. And in life, things don't necessarily end in a neat way. But I guess that doesn't stop me wondering and (laughs) wanting to read more. Maybe there'll be a sequel. I don't don't think there'll be a sequel, but um, I'd love to know what happens through at the end. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Robin. Pleasure. A fact I found really interesting about this book is that it was Brit's mum that gave her the idea when she recounted stories about her southern past. She mentioned there were towns where people would intermarry so their children would get lighter skin with each generation. Britt said she was captivated. That single sentence became the foundation for the book. You can find The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett on Audible. And next up, we're joined by Gabe Fleming. Hi, Gabe. Hi, Imriel. You joined us last series too, and it's so nice to have you back. It's good to be back, thank you. Remind us of what you do at Audible. Yes, I work on the content discovery and engagement team. So I basically I help people find books to listen to. Just like what you're doing right now. Exactly. Brilliant. Can you tell us what you've picked today? Yes, the book is called How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. And what's that about? That is about racism. Um, that is about the history of racism and racist ideas, as well as a really interesting biography of the author. 
He's a fantastic writer, a powerful sort of polemic, emotional writer, marrying like a sort of fiction writer's editorial flair mm-hmm. and funness and sort of, you know, you know, narrative structure. I mean, it's not fun book, but he genuinely <laughs> writes in a fun way. I find it's quite rare, those two things, to cover a really serious political topic, but also to write it in a way that's just a really entertaining, page-turning type of book. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. What did you like the most about the way he's written it? Is it the fact that it's fact-filled or is it more that he weaves himself into the narrative? I think it's him. I think it's his story, his narrative and also his personality, his humility. He's a, by his own description, he is and has been a racist, sexist, homophobe, his words. And really the whole premise of the book is that everyone has really at some point in their life. Mm -hmm. Now, his whole central tenet is that you can't be not racist because you have to be proactively working against it, ergo anti-racist. And being able to have an open conversation about that, which he absolutely does and leads by example, is for me really moving this conversation on, in my mind, in a way that I hadn't before. What was your favourite part of the book, Gabe? The bit that really kind of just impassioned me the most was that when he talks about education, he talks about curriculum. It's Mm -hmm. obviously all very um, US-centric, so he's talking about the way that the curriculum in the US, you learn about, you know, the founding fathers of the US and the Civil War, and you learn about the slavery movement, but it's a white curriculum. There's absolutely no denying it, and he makes the point quite brilliantly that... You know, if you grow up in a white American household raised by white American parents who talk about white American history and that is your culture, then you arrive at school to learn about white American history. And the system basically says that's fair because you're all learning about the same thing. So therefore, you're getting equality of opportunity. And Mm -hmm. right on really early in, in, you know, people's lifetime when the kids starting school, they start to differentiate. This is the classic racist policy that he would say they start to drive these differences because immediately even a very young kid is learning about stuff that's very much from the culture that they've grown up in. And if they're white and middle class, they're more likely to be into history and therefore to have passed some of that onto their children. And a lot of black kids are just starting from the starting block at disadvantage. It actually kind of reminds me of what he was saying about the fact that he just wasn't a very good student, I think it was in chapter eight, where he talks about, you know, being exceptional and being a failure and always having that marked against you because of your race. Let's hear a clip. How do we think about my young self, the C or D student, in anti-racist terms? The truth is that I should be critiqued as a student. I was under-motivated and distracted and undisciplined. In other words, a bad student. But I shouldn't be critiqued as a bad black student. I did not represent my race any more than my irresponsible white classmates represented their race. It makes racist sense to talk about personal irresponsibility as it applies to an entire racial group. Racial group behavior is a figment of the racist imagination. Individual behaviors can shape the success of individuals, but policies determine the success of groups. And it is racist power that creates the policies that cause racial inequities. Yeah, I love that bit as well. That was really, um, again, just back to his, you know, his willingness to look at himself and say, yeah, I'm not a bad black student. And I'm also my badness as a student is not representative of my race. And exactly why the hell should I have to represent my race? Exactly. Has it changed your perspective at all? 
the fact that you and I are having this conversation in rail is a result of this book, right? And mm-hmm. I personally would have felt a lot less confidence in having a conversation about racism with a black person who I don't know really, really well. And I think that is the beauty of books like this. That is the purpose they serve. Because to be honest, my opinion before would have been like, well, that is not for me to say Mm -hmm. because I don't have a right to because who am I to tell someone what my opinions are on racism? But what he's done is opened up the conversation and said, be humble, admit it's a problem, admit you probably have been it. And then we can all just talk about it. And I love the fact that it has that effect. All right. Well, thanks, Gabe. Thank you. Always nice to talk to you. You too. Oh. How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi was Gabe's pick of the week. Tell us what you've listened to by leaving us a review on your favourite podcast player. Next, it's time to hear from some of your favourite authors thanks to Audible Sessions. This week, it's a clip from Catherine Gray's session. Catherine is an award-winning writer and editor known for finding the joy in unexpected places. Her latest book is called The Unexpected Joy of the Ordinary. In it, she looks at the psychology behind myths such as money makes you happy and big weddings make for happy marriages. She joined Holly Newson in the studio to talk about the book, what success looks like and how to find gratitude for the little things in life. You know, you talk a lot in the book about how buying stuff does not make you happy at the end of the day. So why will buying things never really help us achieve happiness? Because... The pleasure of acquisition is greater than the pleasure of actually having it. So the best way I can describe this is with clothes. You know, when you buy something and when you try it on in the shop, you're like, this is going to change my life. This dress is going to change my life. I feel like my life is being changed as I wear this garment. And then you get it home and you might never wear it. And it it definitely doesn't change your life. It just drains of sorcery the longer it is in your wardrobe. And it's nothing to do with the actual dress. It's just your response to it. So it's the wanting of the dress and the buying of the dress is the buzz. But then once we actually have it, it loses that significance. And there's a study that shows that the people that spend more of their income are less happy. So people who spend less are more happy. So it doesn't bear up. But if you think about it, there's a bajillion pound industry trying to persuade us that the opposite is true that the more we spend, the happier we will be. So we just need to wise up to that and be like, "Mm, really? I'm not sure. Do you know what? Sometimes it really helps to hear someone else say that because it's very true. I've bought many, many things in my life that I thought would be groundbreaking and life-changing and they just weren't. So thank you, Catherine, for laying that all out on the line because I'm going to stop buying things I don't need anymore. You can find Catherine's session on Audible, along with The Unexpected Joy of the Ordinary and some of her other books like The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober. And last, but by no means least, it's time to hear what you've been loving in our genre corner. This is where I invite you to tell me about something on Audible you can't stop talking about. I've really enjoyed listening to your suggestions, so please keep sending them in. This week, our recommendation comes from Phoebe for a mystery book. Here's what she had to say. I'm Phoebe, and the last book that I listened to on Audible was Where the Crawdads Sing, which is a coming-of-age debut novel by Celia Owens, and it tells a story of a young girl who's kind of forced to grow up in the marshlands of America, alone and um, it's a really powerful 
novel about an independent girl with a sort of thriller undertone. So I would very much recommend it. Powerful, you say? Intriguing. Thanks, Phoebe. Delia Owen's novel, Where the Crawdads Sing, is available on Audible now. Have you got a favourite book you'd like to recommend? You can email me and I'll read out your suggestion on the show, or why not send us a voice note? Get in touch with us by emailing yhihf at audible.co.uk. And if you fancy sending us a voice note, simply record it on your phone and send it to that email. But as always, keep this a spoiler-free zone. And that's all from me this week here on You Heard It Here First. I hope you found something exciting to listen to. Please let us know your favourites in the review section of the show. Just in case you missed any titles we featured today, here they are again. The Spy and the Traitor by Ben McIntyre. Lote by Shola von Reinhold. Around the World by Bike by Alistair Humphreys. The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. Catherine Gray's Audible Session. And our genre corner today was Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. You've been listening to You Heard It Here First, an Audible original produced by Content to Screen, presented by me, Imriel Morgan, additional voices by Richard Hodson, and featuring Robin Morgan Bentley and Gabe Fleming. It was produced by Ellie Clifford. Original music was by Seth Bradford. For Audible, the executive producer was Holly Newson. The production executive was Hayley Nathan. And the commissioning editor was Kent DePinto. Pinto.